Welcome to episode 75 of Lucretius Today. I'm your host, Cassius, and together with my panelists from the EpicureanFriends.com forum, we'll walk you through the six books of Lucretius's poem and discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. We encourage you to study Epicurus for yourself, and we suggest the best place to start is the book Epicurus and His Philosophy by Canadian professor Norman DeWitt. For anyone who is not familiar with our podcast, please check back to episode one for a discussion of our goals and our ground rules. If you have any questions about those, please be sure to contact us at epicureanfriends.com for more information. In this episode 75, we'll read approximately Latin lines 821 through 924 from book 5. We'll be talking about the initial forms of life on earth and how we can judge what types of life were possible and what were not possible in arising here on earth. Now let's join Charles reading today's text. And that the earth might have some release and not always be in labor, she at length left off as a woman worn out and past her prime. For time changes the nature of the whole world. One body continually rises from another. No being remains long like itself. Things are in a perpetual flux. One thing decays and grows weak by time. Another becomes vigorous and flourishes in its strength. Thus time alters the face of the whole world, and the earth passes from one state to another. She can no more produce the creatures she once did and now she bears what she could not do before. The earth, it may be supposed, was at first delivered of many monstrous births, of a wonderful shape, and of an uncommon size, and some between the two sexes, not properly of both, yet not far removed from either, some without feet, and others without hands, many without a mouth and eyes, some had their limbs growing and sticking together over all their bodies, that they could not do no office of life, nor move from their place, nor fly what was hurtful, nor receive food to preserve their beings. Many other monsters and strange productions of this kind were at first formed, but in vain, for nature was shocked and would not suffer them to increase, that they could not arrive to any maturity of age, nor could they find their food, nor taste the pleasures of love. For any circumstances we observe, we must kindly agree that creatures might be able to propagate their kind. First of all, there must be proper food, and then fit organs for the genial seed to flow through from all the limbs, and that the male and female may be closely joined. They must be furnished for those parts that may promote the mutual delights of both. And therefore many kind of animals must needs be extinct, nor could they all by propagation continue their species, for almost every race of creatures we now see living, either their cunning or their courage or their swiftness, have secured and preserved them from the very beginning. And there are many that, from their usefulness to mankind, have recommended themselves to our defense. And first the fierce breed of lions, and their savage race, their courage protected. Craft secures the fox, and swiftness the stag. But the watchful and faithful race of dogs, all beasts of burden, the flocks and herds, all these, my memus, are committed to the care of man. These fly swiftly from the rage of wild beasts. They love a quiet life and depend upon us for their fill of provision, without any labor of their own, which we allow them plentifully, as a reward for the benefits we receive from them. 
But those creatures on whom nature has bestowed no such qualities that cannot support themselves nor afford us any advantage, why should we suffer such a race to be fed by our care or defended by our protection? These, by their unhappy laws of their nature, being destitute of all things, became an easy prey to others till their whole species was at last destroyed. But never have there been any such things as centaurs, nor could a creature at any time be formed from a doubtful nature, from two bodies and out of members so different and disagreeable. The limbs and faculties of a man and a horse could never act out uniformly together with all their power, and this is obvious to a very mean apprehension, for a horse at three years old is strong and active, a child is far from so. At that age he is commonly feeling for the mother's breast in his sleep, and when the horse's strength decays by old age, and his feeble limbs fail him at the end of his life, then the boy flourishes in the prime of youth, and the beginnings of a beard appear upon his cheeks. Never think, therefore, that there is or ever can be such a creature as a centaur, made up of a human nature and the servile seat of a horse, or that there are any such things as Scyllas, having their loins surrounded with the ravenous bodies of half-sea-dogs. Believe nothing of other monsters like these, whose members we observe so opposite and disagreeing, which neither live to the same age, nor grow strong or decay together, which are neither inflamed with the same sort of love, nor have the same dispositions, nor preserve their bodies by the same food. For goats, we see, often grow fat with hemlock, which to men is sharp poison. And since fire will scorch and burn the yellow body of a lion, as well as the bowels of any other creature living with blood in its veins, how could a chimera, with its body of three kinds, with a lion's head, a dragon's tail, and the middle like a goat, blow abroad a fierce flame out of his body? Thank you, Charles, for reading that today. And we appreciate your being back with us today. So good to have you back. There's a lot in this week's material, even though it's not particularly long. And so going back to the very beginning paragraph about the Earth no longer producing the same kind of living beings that she produced originally is a continuation from last week. So anybody want to suggest a place to jump in? It's descriptive. One thing I, I did find interesting is that I saw some translations where they use the word portents, where other translations use the word monsters. And I thought that was odd, but I did go back and look, and it looks like that the word that's used in some of those portions is portenta, a portent. But it looks like it was used in a wider sense than just, you know, the if you have a prophecy and you have portents of something that's going to happen, that it was expanded into the idea that evil things are ugly things. And so it was could refer to any unnatural occurrence. And one of the examples I saw that they said, Pliny called an Egyptian with a pair of non-functioning eyes on the back of his head a portentum. So I thought that was an interesting, because I thought it was so odd that I saw that, you know, there were there were many portents. And I was like, mm, would that mean things were going to happen? or But no, but it was an act, a word that they could use for, for an unnatural occurrence. There is the, the monstrum, too. They do have the, the word monstrum in that occurs as well, but it both the the portentum and the monstrum are two ways to talk about unnatural things and just snakes with feet and birds with four wings and that kind of stuff. That's a good point because monstrous has a sort of a value judgment connotation to it nowadays. And you, you wonder when you come across a word like that, whether he's actually suggesting anything undesirable because the other two adjectives that are in this sentence in the, the 1743 edition are, are just wonderful and then uncommon <clears throat> in the same line, which would indicate that, like you said, it's just something unexpected or irregular or 
just something that doesn't happen very often. One of the sources that I saw actually said that Suetonius is quoted as saying, a monstrum is contrary to nature or exceeds the nature we are familiar with. So Latin has the word monstrum, which does, in fact, maybe slightly more closely approximate our current usage. Exactly, exactly. And so that's, that's, I think, where we get the word itself. And so that's, but it just, it's just basically something that's contrary to nature or is, you know, something that exceeds the nature that we're familiar with that we see out there. And the example that he gives is the thing with the snakes with feet and the birds with four wings or, or monstrums as far or monstra as far as Suetonius is concerned. There's got to be a fairly obvious limit to that connotation of the word here because it may be contrary to nature, but obviously it's not so contrary or so against it that it wasn't produced by nature in the first place. Exactly. Um, It's just, it's, it's contrary to what we're familiar with. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, that I've never, you know, snakes with feet. That's, that's a monstrum there. And this is going probably too far into the rest of the material, but the point being made later on that since, and certain things are impossible. So these things that he's talking about now of wonderful shape and uncommon size, whether it's portents or monstrums or whatever, they're not impossible because they actually happen. There's a distinction there. That exactly. The snake with feet, I would like to somewhat contradict because there are snake species which at least have toes left from their development. Because snakes as a group of species develop from lizards. So the lizards were there before. And some lizards lost their legs. Some of these uh, lizards without legs are still uh, classified as lizards, but uh, most of the species of former lizards without, typically without legs are snakes. And among these snakes, especially boars and pythons and some other snakes, do have these remnants of the hind legs. I think that's a really good point because I think even even within that definition Suetonius gives, it's, it's contrary to what we're familiar with. So if they had brought in a a snake with lizards from some faraway country, they more than likely would have called it a monstrum because they had never seen this thing before and it exceeded what they had expected to see from nature. So I think that something like that, even though it does exist in nature, if you're not familiar with it, you're taken aback by it. Mm -hmm. Now, are you guys talking about the same thing, though? Martin, what is the point of this paragraph? The point being that he said in the early days, the Earth produced certain things which were incapable of survival, I guess, is where he's really going with this paragraph, or at least incapable of surviving over the long term. Martin, were you making the point that the snakes having residual legs is contrary to that, or just maybe it's actually an example of what he's saying, because obviously the snakes were able to adapt and so therefore to, were able to survive. You know, that's the example given is it's not really 100% correct. It's not completely wrong, but it's just a petty correction of this one. I, I didn't uh, think further on that one uh, with respect to the meaning of the text here. Okay. I'm sorry if I'm not finding the exact passage that you're looking at. Did he say something about snakes in particular in here? Oh, no. no that's, that, I'm sorry. That's that's from Suetonius. So that, that's, oh, that, I'm that's sorry. The, the definition of, of monstrum was where he was talking about that. Okay. Well, early in the episode, I become completely disconnected from the discussion then. So that's not a good portent for today's discussion, <laughs> but I'll try oh, to do well better. Played. Well played. Try to do better, not be monstrous. Okay. Up to the first paragraph. So this is quite interesting. Now, the last sentence, at first I struggled with, or did I really understand? But then I saw this, no? so that it, it, 
from this idea of spontaneous genesis, no? so it elaborates on this one. And because we do no more see this with big animals happen, but we still apparently see this with worms. So if, if we accept this nonsense theory as superficially somewhat matching observations. So then the conclusion is, for example, that we see that the worms come out of the earth. So in the past, the earth could produce dragons. So now it can no more produce dragons. But instead, it produces worms, which in that idea, apparently, it couldn't produce worms before. Well, I hate to be too nitpicky on what you just said, but I think what he's going to say at the end of the passage today is that it never could produce dragons. Because if dragons are blowing flame out of their body at any rate, he's saying that that was an impossibility. So maybe what you're saying is correct. It's just that dragon might not be the best. I think maybe elephant would be a better one because we know that elephants exist. We don't know that dragons exist. And in fact, we say dragons cannot exist, but elephants can exist. So, so Martin, your point is that he's saying that at one time the earth was able to produce elephants basically fully formed out of the earth and that now it can only produce worms yeah and, and so the other conclusion in the past it could not produce worms and that is a, i see no reason why to conclude that well now why would you say that because i'm not sure i can see him saying something that would eliminate the earth producing worms originally in addition to producing elephants. does he say something that eliminates that possibility in your mind there's the very last phrase in the paragraph and now she bears what she could not do before so that means at least some of the species which produced before, yeah. because worms are the standard example of what superficially observed is produced by Earth, then the conclusion is in the past the Earth did not produce worms, which is of course complete nonsense. I see, I see. Don would have to yeah. drill down to the Latin in order to really be certain of that what that last sentence is supposed to mean. That's why I'm glad you've brought to us, Don, your excellent uh, interlinear translation so we can immediately go from Latin to English back and forth without any hesitation at all, right? Have you brought see, have you now, got that for us yet? See now now you're now you're like making me <laughs> <laughs> We've got to find that resource somewhere where we can quickly go back and forth between the Latin and the English and compare these things. Okay, one more remark. So I didn't want to use dragon as the example, but that was there you go. I, I was somehow misled myself because I thought before, because of remnants of dinosaurs found, people then reconstructed those as dragons, and that's why I said dragons instead of dinosaurs. Yeah, boy, that would be an interesting topic to discuss too, whether there's any evidence from the Roman period, the Greek period, that they knew about dinosaurs. There's at least <laughs> in the um, Loeb Classical Library one with the Latin on one side and the English on the other side. That line is translated as, so therefore time changes the nature of the whole world and one state of the earth gives place to another so that what she bore, she cannot, but can bear what she did not bear before. And there's a footnote that goes, this one author argues perhaps rightly that the relative clauses are subject. He translates so that what bore cannot, namely the earth, and what could not bear can, namely the parents of each species. I'm still not sure what that even means. That is a clumsily translated uh, line as far as I'm concerned. I guess the point would be that in our translation, you've got the word did, which doesn't necessarily imply capability. But then in our translation, when it says she now bears what she could not do before, that would be the question is whether oh, the original Latin contains. So, so, the, yeah, so, yeah, so it looks like, yeah, so the what bore cannot, which is namely earth. So the earth can no longer bear children the earth itself can no longer bear children and what could not bear can namely the parents of each species so now the parents of each species are the ones that 
will give rise to other species and other animals and things. So they're translating it as that the earth itself cannot bear any more organisms, for lack of a better way of putting it. But now the parents of each species bear the things that are going to populate the earth. So that's how they're tra- there. There seems like that's a tortuous way to translate it, but I certainly can't translate Latin on the fly. So. Yeah, I agree with Martin's ultimate point, though, that there's no reason to conclude that an Earth that could produce elephants or dinosaurs in the past could not also have produced worms at the same time. Right. And so if the Latin goes so far as to imply that, then that would probably be something we would reject. But uh, it, it, I would look to the Latin to question and see, because the only point you can justifiably conclude, I would say, is that the Earth did or did not, and it does or does not. Right, as far as right. can, that's right. a different question, I would say. Yeah, and and my take in that the whole idea is that, you know, the earth was, you know, very fertile whenever it was first formed and could form all of these elephants and dinosaurs and whales and you know full, fully formed animals. And then over time it just became worn out and the only thing that it can produce now are are worms and maybe some bugs that come out of the earth. And your point about that was what, Don? Just the fact that, that, that the only thing that the earth can produce from itself out of the ground now are worms because it's worn out. And they bring the uh, the idea of, uh, you know, almost like a like like a woman reaching menopause or something can can no longer bear children. So the earth itself can no longer bear children out of the earth itself, out of those wombs and things that form underground. So the only thing that can that the earth itself can bring to life now is worms out of the ground whereas before it could produce elephants and dinosaurs and whatever else it needed to yeah it's kind of what he was saying like in the first sentence too he makes the exact analogy of menopause exactly exactly I guess somebody looking at these arguments might say to themselves, well, boy, I don't find it very persuasive to to compare the earth to a, a woman or any animal that gives birth only when it's younger. But I guess one response to that concern would be, well, you do see these things right here in front of you. They came from somewhere. You might think that it's difficult to imagine how these things were produced in past times, but it would be even more wonderful or hard to believe to say that they just popped into existence from nothing because they do, in fact, exist. Exactly. So. This this might be a good place for me to bring up. I, I mentioned before we started today that I was looking again through uh, Sedley's Lucretius and the Transformation of Greek Wisdom, and he talks specifically about Empedocles and his idea for this whole idea of Epicurus says and Lucretius says that these animals were formed, fully formed in wombs and they came up out of the ground and that sort of thing. Well, evidently, according to Sedley, Empedocles also posited this this set of like randomly composed monsters that started the whole idea of life on Earth. And Empedocles uses the description of man-faced ox children, which is sort of unnerving to think about. And only the fittest of these man-faced ox children survived. And Sedley said that this this sort of earned him some grudging respect from the Epicureans, but not in not in the details, because Empedocles idea was that there were originally disassociated limbs and organs crawling around by themselves and they would come together in different groupings and see what would survive. And then they would come into a different grouping and see what would survive. And so he actually started out not just with fully formed animals from the earth, but disparate limbs and organs and this sort of thing. And they finally came together in these man-faced ox children that were out there so the epicureans said you know that's that's just ridiculous you can't have limbs and organs existing by themselves but they said okay well at least you're looking for a material cause of these things and not that the gods created them themselves so epicurus and lucretius 
they applauded Empedocles and the other pre-Socratic philosophers for coming up with material causes, but they, you know, they went against their details and they said at least it's not the teleology of Plato and Aristotle that you know that, that man is the crowning achievement of you know everything and that the, there there was some some random chance and some material causes for things, but you know in, in the details they were like yeah limbs and organs coming together randomly that's not gonna that's not gonna work. But I hold, found the whole idea of limbs and organs crawling around the ground by themselves both unnerving and sort of intriguing at the same time. That is really helpful to explain why Epicurus and Lucretius are talking about some of the things that they're talking about here. I, I'd never heard that about Empedocles. I hadn't either. That was that was a new one to me. So, and I think that uh, Epicurus and Lucretius would have the same argument against the, the man-faced ox children that they do against the centaurs and the... Yes, that seems directly lined up parallel to each other. And probably in the second paragraph, at the end of that one, I see the line about, first of all, there must be proper food and then fit organs for the general seed to flow through from all the limbs. So the idea that organs might have existed before the full beings did is something I've never considered. But if it was in Empedocles, then it would be obvious why Epicurus would be entertaining that possibility. According to Sally, it's Plutarch even that, that writes that the Epicureans specifically derided the, the details of the man-faced ox children. That also plays back in the issue about, have we already hit the part about the limbs not being formed for their use? Where was that, Charles? Was that like in book one, or maybe we haven't gotten to it yet? But the issue of the gods not having a pattern for things and the limbs not being formed so that people could run and things like that. Have we had that already, guys? Or I think it was in a prior episode, but it would also now be more logical why he would be talking about which came first, the feet or the use. If Empedocles thought that there was just feet running around or, or sitting around on the earth. Okay, well, shall we move to the third passage? This next one has some interesting connotations as well when he starts talking about domesticated animals and how we take care of some, but not others. And frankly, it strikes me that there's one particular sentence here that people could take in place in other contexts where he says, but those creatures on whom nature has bestowed no such qualities that cannot support themselves nor afford us any advantage, why should we suffer such a race to be fed by our care or defended by our protection? I would suggest that probably that line will not go on the motto of the naturalist societies of the world or the, the motto of the, the nature. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's probably not going to be high up on their list of favorite sayings from the ancient world. But he continues in the very next sentence and says, by the unhappy laws of their nature being destitute of all things, they became an easy prey to others till their whole species was at last destroyed. So I would have to, again, look at the Latin of unhappy, but it certainly would probably be something that he's not necessarily endorsing. He's just saying that's the nature of things. And I think, so. too, it goes back to the whole idea, back to the beginning of these animals coming up out of the ground that he talks in previous sections about that, you know, their, their limbs didn't work or, you know, they couldn't run or they couldn't. So naturally, these are going to fall prey to the lions eating them and everything right. else. And so that's why we don't see that particular species anymore because they 
couldn't protect themselves. And so they're gone and we'll we'll never see them again. And that was a failed experiment. Right. And that's the reason, no doubt, that he's bringing up this part about the domesticated animals. I think that emphasizes the point that you just made, Don, that you're either by nature equipped with the abilities to survive, or if you're not naturally equipped with those abilities to survive, you, you'll have to find another method of survival. Because if you don't do one of those two things, <clears throat> then you're just not going to survive. Exactly, exactly. And it, it, I got from that section that it seemed like he was saying that there have always been domesticated animals. He didn't talk about the process of domestication, that they may have once been wild and that we domesticated them. It sounded like he was saying that humans have always had these animals and have always taken care of them. And he didn't really think of them once roaming free. And then we took care of them. But it seemed like he was saying that they just, you know, there were wild animals and there were domesticated animals. And it's just always been that way. And we've always taken care of these particular animals because they were useful to us. Yeah, he's not emphasizing any kind of time element that, that uh, would that things would develop over time, like what exactly. we talked about last week. Martin, you got any thoughts on that section? Uh, no, no, of course not. And Charles, how about you? I know you're tired. Any thoughts on that section, Charles? Not really. I find it interesting that it almost has the rudiments of the whole idea of Darwinian evolution and survival of the fittest in the sense that you have the ability to survive. And there's there's little inklings in there of that whole idea, but it's not quite fully formed. But I, I can see where there are, and I'm not saying that you know, Epicurus was a Darwinian evolutionist, but there are sort of glimmers of the idea, the beginnings of that idea in in this, I think. Yeah, I agree. I would probably even go further and say it's, it's more than glimmers even. It's really, this section seems to be devoted to just the observation that things have to be acclimated and prove that they can survive over time in their environment in order to be successful. I mean, the element on selection is clearly there. So that one is an obvious analogy, or we can even go further. It's not just an analogy. It's basically that idea. But what's really missing is the evolution itself. So that one, this whole concept of the spontaneous genesis is absolutely contrary to that one. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point, because from the way I'm reading it, too, he's saying that each of the species we see was grown, fully formed out of the earth. And so then you have your elephants and you have your dogs and you have your chickens and you have your cows. And they've been that way from the very beginning. There's no idea of speciation or that sort of thing. I agree with what you're saying. And that's what we would be having to be sure we look for and comment if we see any hints of it. But I agree with you that there's really not any hint in it of change within the species or between species over time. That does not appear to be in here. So there is the idea of, there is the idea of fitness in the sense that you survive and you have this hesitate to use the word skills, but you have the ability to survive and pass on your genes. But those genes are not going to change over time. You're not going to change, you know, a a small four legged animal into a a running horse over over time. He's not seeing that. I think that he would say that the, the horse, as we know, it was fully formed at the beginning. And that's the way it's always been. There might have been some horses who only had three legs or there might have been some horses that, you know, didn't have any you know tail or there might have been some you know things that made them that they weren't fit to survive. And so we don't see those kinds of things. But the horse with the four legs and the mane and the tail, that's what came up out of the earth. And that's the way it's remained since the beginning of the world. Yeah, I think there have been several instances We've probably already covered them, and this is another one where in the middle of this third paragraph where he talks about 
the fierce breed of lions, their courage protected. Craft secures the fox. The stag is swift. And then he talks about the fateful race of dogs. It seems like there have been a couple of places in Lucretius where he's gone through lists like that, where he's noted the characteristics of a particular type of animal or type of human in times. And so he's seeing that there's a set of characteristics that's important, but he's not discussing any mechanism of change within those characteristics over time. I did want to point out, I thought it was interesting. I jotted down one of the lines as Charles was reading. And whenever the one section talks about the propagation of the species and you know the proper organs to transfer the seed and that sort of thing, the, the fact that he says mutual delights of both, both the, the male and the female, I thought was interesting. And I think, at least to me, brings up the whole idea of that equality and men and women have equal value. And so the mutual delights of both are what he's talking about. I thought that was kind of an interesting throwback to some of the things that he said in some earlier passages about men and women, you know, having mutual delights in the act of procreation, shall we say. But I thought that was an interesting point. You could probably also relate it to when you especially with the word mutual, with just sort of even more general concepts of justice and Mm -hmm. and how justice must be based on the without going too far down that road, just on the mutual interests or pleasures of both. And that's really where I was going to go next to it is that you've got the mutual aspect and then you've got the delight aspect. And that's the pleasure part of it. And so he's talking about pleasure being a component of this selection process as if pleasure has sprung fully formed from the womb of the earth. I still don't have a good way to express where that might lead you to go, but pleasure is included here as actually the motivating factor of the propagation, the continuance of the species. Exactly, exactly. Not so much just that they survive, but that they find pleasure. And the and the, the actual Latin word is, is gaudia, which, which it literally means joy or delight. What's the Latin word again? Gaudia. G-A-U-D-I-A. Gaudia. Gaudia. As in Gaudi? Uh, spelled that way, yeah. That's an interesting twist or change in meaning. Gaudi means showy or ostentatious or something like that, right? Today? That's, that, that's etymology for you. <laughs> change over time yeah i want to say there's there's some hymn or something that has igitor gaudi I, I can't remember what the what the phrase is now but so i'm, I'm assuming that gaudi or, or gaudia would translate uh, euphrosine in the greek so the joy or joy or delight exactly what i was going to say the joy of delight part not the resting pleasures but the joy and delight part exactly exactly euphrosine and kara so the mutual joy or delight an act of pleasure. Look at that. that. Okay, that makes sense then. Okay, well, to continue to our fourth and final paragraph of today, this is the part about centaurs not being able to exist. And I noted that when I was preparing this text and reading what Monroe had to say about it, that Monroe was particularly impressed, it seems like, with this passage. He wrote that the passage is extremely well and acutely reasoned out. And I think what he's focusing on there is the part about how he thinks it's a good argument that the fact that men and horses grow at a very different rate and that when one is old, when the horse is old, the boy is still young. I think Monroe was particularly impressed with that argument. Maybe I'm misinterpreting Monroe, but that's part of the argument here. 
that you can conclude that a centaur could never exist because it's the nature of a horse, if that's what a centaur is partly made of, to be or goat to grow old at a much faster rate than it is for a human to grow old. So what do you guys think about this final paragraph? I, I will have to agree with him. I thought it was a very astute, reasoned argument, I, and I, I had never heard it before. And I think that that is a really good way to, to look at it, because centaurs only exist from what I can remember now in, in the imagination of people by the combination of different images. But in actuality, you couldn't have such a thing because of the very reasons that he talks about in there and the same reasons you can't have a chimera or a scylla. I remember a podcast or two where we discussed this point relatively at length about whether centaurs were something that we can rule out as being impossible because of the premises of our physics or whether centaurs are things that we just haven't seen and maybe they are possible or and then i think like you said we're also talking about how the images coming together to form centaurs is is something that he's discussed i think earlier in maybe book four and by the way he's reasoning it out i mean you could almost think that you know a centaur type thing or a scylla type thing or a chimera type thing would be one of those monsters or portents that would have shown up in the early days of the world, but could not have existed because the parts didn't work well together. So they would have died out anyway, even if there was ever such a thing. So you're saying, Don, if Sadly's correct, that this is a direct refutation of Democritus and his ox-faced men type. And Pedicles, Pedicles. yeah, yeah, I think that, but I think that, yeah, I think that, yeah, there's, you just, you couldn't have these different things coming together because they just don't, they don't work and play well together. Yeah, I don't know where I came up with Democritus. Yes, a direct refutation of, of, of Empedocles. And maybe the, I guess there's two arguments here, the issue of aging separately and then the issue of whether a flame could exist within the body of a normal animal. That's why I just find the section so well-reasoned out. I was like, it, I, I found it quite entertaining the way he explained that. Martin and Charles, I don't guess we even today have examples of animals that produce fire. Do we? We haven't found any unusual animals in Antarctica or unusual places. That... I mean, a guy of Chinese descent told me that in China they have this idea that a kind of water reptile uh, of the past, now extinct, they, they produced methane and then found a way to, to incinerate it. And this is the origin of the flame-throwing dragon, uh, so that there was actually a species in the past which used this for hunting or defense. Oh, they could expel the methane and then ignite it, I guess would be the word, uh, after they've expelled it. So it would, the flame would come outside their body, but they would still be using flame. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. So, so that, uh, but, but it's, it's like when, when, when men uh, swallow the, some vulnerable liquid and spit it out in a forceful way and then incinerate it. Né? So that it doesn't burn inside their mouth. Né? So they, once they know how to do it, they will not injure themselves. From that, né? And this animal would have done the same. But this is not scientific. Né? So this is basically Chinese folklore, but they give it somehow a materialistic interpretation. What is it that people do? I'm sure there's YouTube videos everywhere. Don, I bet you know what, or Charles, what is it you put in your mouth and then you ignite it after you spit it? I've seen people do that on YouTube, right? I assume, yeah, yeah, I was going to say grain alcohol, I'm assuming. Because if you swallow it by accident, it, it won't uh, kill you in, if it's in a moderate dose. Huh? So a mouthful of alcohol won't, won't kill you. You might know more, and this is completely off topic, but 
Does alcohol burn at a lower temperature than other flammable liquids? Yeah, I read about this one because you can, uh, the, but it depends uh, on, on the conditions. Because when we have, say alcohol, we usually mean uh, aqueous solution of uh, um, 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 aqueous mixture of water and alcohol. And this water in there will definitely help to bring down the temperature. Ah. And that one I read as well, because when you play around with fire produced from alcohol, you do not necessarily get severe burns from it. No, but, but you can get very severe burns. So in the laboratory of the uh, university of my wife, one girl was severely burned, almost died from, from fire. So it, it's not by, by nature safe. So, but but uh, under some conditions, the, the temperature may be uh, somewhat lower. And especially if the, you're, you're not in uh, long contact with this one, that means you, you may get out of it without a serious burn. But, but we should make a disclaimer, don't try this at home. So someone who knows how to do that properly, uh, instead of just try it out, uh, figure it out by yourself, because that would mean you will get burned a couple of times until you figure it. Good point. Good point. Good disclaimer. YouTube video is as close as I would want to get to anybody wanting to actually try that kind of thing. Well, we're coming to the end of a normal length episode for today, and we probably ought to begin to think about closing comments for this week. But before we do, anybody have any, any new material to raise before we go to closing comments? No. Oh, I have one remark on Gaudi. No? So this exists as a, uh, still as a word with the meaning fun in Bavarian and Austrian uh, dialects of German. With wow. the meaning of fun, mm -hmm. not a derogatory meaning of any kind. No, and I, I've heard this often in, or read it also in Bavarian texts or in, in Bavarian plays, no? so that they would use this word Gaudi. That would be a great translation too, the mutual fun of both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Martin, you know, the word gay, I think that comes from the same place. I think of Nietzsche's The Gay Science. Is that the word he uses in that title of that book? Or does he use joyous or something? I forget. I, I don't know the German of what Nietzsche would have written either. Let me try to find the German title of this one. So say again, what is the title of this one in English? Isn't it The Gay Science, Don or Charles? I yes. think that's the title. Yeah, by Nietzsche. At least I, I looked up the etymology of the English word, at least, and it says it's from the old French gay, meaning joyful, laughing, or merry, usually thought to be a borrowing from, let's go back here, Proto-Germanic, and possibly going back to Proto-Indo-European, meaning to stride or step or to go. But Crudin rejects this derivation and treats the Germanic word as having no known etymology. So there you go. They leave that until <laughs> the end. <laughs> Okay. And I see the answer on Nietzsche, because the the German is the frolicking witchcraft, if you want to do, want to do a poor defrolic Wissenkraft. How do you say that, Martin? The oh, V's yeah, yeah. and the W's always kill me. Let me find by myself under Nietzsche. So. My pig German would be the frolicking witchcraft, but that's not exactly defrolic Wissenkraft. Do you happen to know in what year this Ah, here. There is it. Aha, uh aha. -huh, uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it, it's not about witchcraft, and so, so it's essentially the yeah the the, the frolicking science. So, so that one would make the most sense. Can you pronounce the whole German? Defrolic. How do you say that? Die, die fröhliche Wissenschaft. Say the last word one more time. Wissenschaft. The W in German is pronounced V. Okay, so frolic would be a different word entirely than Gaudi, I guess. Okay, that was a tangent. <laughs> Did that finish the tangent, uh, or do we want to go to closing comments now? 
uh, Martin. Do you have anything else to say on that? No, no, no. Uh, neither on this. I also don't have a closing comment. <laughs> okay. Charles, again, thank you for being with us today. I know you're tired. You've started a new schedule, and we appreciate mm-hmm. your being here. And anytime you can, please continue to be here. But any closing thoughts for today? No. All right. Don. Uh, the the only thing I will add is I did find the the thing I was thinking of with, with Gaudia and the the hymn is Gaudiamus Igitor. So let us rejoice is the name of the uh, the hymn. All right. And just because my attention span can get very short sometime, that's the word that's included in what we have as the last sentence in our second paragraph today. They must be furnished with those parts that may promote the mutual delights of both. Exactly. Gaudia was the was the uh, delight. And so it's it's translated as joy delight. And then it comes back to Gaudiamus Igator. So let us rejoice. And so we can do the same thing with Epicureanism. Okay, so the promoting the mutual rejoicings of both might be another way to go with that. Or fun if you're Bavarian. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. well, very good. That was another good episode. So thanks, everybody, for your time today. We'll do it again next week. So talk to you then. I'm good. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.